From WGMU and the Department of English at George Mason University, this is Mason Out Loud, featuring the best writing and research from George Mason's creative community. I'm your host, Katrina Smith. Today, we're featuring P.J. Devlin's short story, The Witch. In 2011, P.J. Devlin received the MFA in creative writing from George Mason University. P.J. Devlin tells stories about relationships. Her characters, whether a servant, a teen, an elderly woman, an egotist, a witch, or a dwarf, arrive at the intersection of acceptance and rejection where trouble leads to understanding. A longtime resident of Fairfax County, PJ is a Philadelphia native and much of her work is set there. Two novels, Wissahickon Souls and Becoming Jonica, and her short story collection, Wishes, Sins, and the Wissahickon Creek, are available through Amazon in print and ebook. Wissahickon Souls is a 2016 Book Excellence Awards winner. A short story, The Decline and Fall, was runner up in the 2013 Saturday Evening Post Great American Fiction Contest. Other stories have been published in print, online, and in anthologies. A lifetime passes in the blink of an eye. The old ways become curiosities, objects to regard and reject. A lifetime ago, I lived with my parents and brothers in an old house on an old street in the outskirts of Philadelphia. For generations, descendants of Daniel Faulkner, who followed Kelpius to the caves above the Wissahickon Creek, have lived in the small mill town seven miles upstream from Mystic's Cave. Each time I rode my bike through town, someone greeted me with, You're a Faulkner. It's all over your face. At such words, my cheeks burned scarlet, and I traced the thin white scar on my upper lip. I rarely spoke, ashamed of my lisp. Being the schoolyard laughingstock left me anxious and exhausted and desperate for solitude. Most days after school, while our mothers started dinner and my little brother sat in front of the TV, I headed outside for the woods in the Wissahickon Creek. A shortcut to the creek ran through the woods alongside a small stone cottage overgrown with ivy and surrounded by brush. Kids said the elderly woman who lived in the cottage was a witch. The day Mr. O'Neill, the mailman, told my parents he saw me entering the woods by the stone cottage, my parents forbade me to take the shortcut. What if something happened to you? How would we find you, my mother asked, her face gray and her lips pressed tight. The old lady in the cottage would find me, I told her, my eyes straying to the television. My father slapped his newspaper on the coffee table and rose to his feet. Stay away from the cottage, Betsy. That's the end of it. Still, each time I headed for the Wissahickon, after looking over my shoulder, I took the forbidden path. As soon as I reached the water's edge, I skipped stones, watched ripples form and fade, and wondered about the witch. On a warm evening in September 1957, my brothers and I sat on our front porch eating salted pumpkin seeds. Henry Faulkner, our doctor and my mother's cousin, had come to visit. Quiet conversation drifted through the living room window. When I heard old Elizabeth's cottage, I shimmied closer and strained to hear. We should come to a decision, Liz, Dr. Henry said. The cottage is an eyesore. I have mixed feelings, Henry. I hate to think I'd be responsible for tearing it down, Mother said. It's been in the family since 1744, the year the first Elizabeth was born. We'll think about it. Old Elizabeth won't live forever, Dr. Henry said. A red welt like a slap burned across my cheek. The next afternoon, while our mother bustled in the kitchen and my little brothers chased a ball in our fenced backyard, I rode my bike down the street, headed for the Wissahickon Creek. Before I entered the narrow path through the woods, I stopped to contemplate the cottage's granite cornerstone etched with the year 1744. I envisioned a boy chiseling the granite under his master's steady gaze. If I ran my finger through the straight, smooth numbers, I fancied the boy would feel my touch. Along the path, I pushed my bike over tendrils of ivy 
city that clutch my ankles like beggars. The dank reek of flowers in the last bloom of summer harked of ancient times when Indians crept along the very path to fish in the Wissahickon. A purple martin chortled from a pine tree high above. A wisp of smoke floated through the trees. From behind a hickory, its mottled bark rough on my cheek, I peeked towards the witch's yard. A gaunt, dark figure stood on a rock terrace. Her skirt fluttered in the breeze. Rosemary, mint and lavender-scented smoke, billowed from a fire in her pit where I suppose she cooked her victims. Although I hid behind the tree, when I snuck a look, the witch's eyes locked on mine. After she stirred the ashes with a poker, she raised her hand and beckoned me. I dropped my bike and ran to the creek, afraid to look back. My heart pounded. As I sat on the creek bank, I struggled to catch my breath. I lay back on the cool grass and gazed at the sky, where thick white clouds formed into ships sailing over roiling seas. Soon my hands stopped shaking. I skipped stones in the creek and watched ripples disappear in the water's flow. As I studied the veins of a red maple leaf, I wondered what sort of girl the witch had been. Did she long for quiet and solitude? Did she cringe when her parents argued? While her mother wept, did she nestle her little brothers in her arms, begging them to be quiet? Did she run through the woods to the creek and skip stones? Toward the end of October, a few days before my 13th birthday on Halloween, a virulent illness swept my neighborhood. Now, I know it is the Asian flu pandemic of 1957, but when I knew only that my mother and brother's cheeks burned red with fever and their eyes were glassy and frightened, my father's eyes were glassy and frightened too, although like me, he had no symptoms. Before he flew to Chicago for a conference on surviving an atom bomb attack, he called our school to report the family's illness. As he packed his bags, he bade me take care of my sick family. Coughs and moans kept me awake at night, and I shook with fear. My mother and brothers would die because I didn't know how to care for them. The day after my father left, Dr. Henry stopped by. I followed him from room to room and watched him shake his head while he read the thermometer. My mother and brother's pajamas and sheets were soaked from sweat, yet covered with blankets they shivered. I must make sure they drink water, ginger ale, something every hour, Dr. Henry told me. My mother should take Bayer aspirin and the boys St. Joseph's. Before Dr. Henry walked out the door, he told me to place cold washcloths on their foreheads. After two days, my mother tried to get up but collapsed on the floor. Somehow I dragged her back to bed. The boys had stopped crying by then and lay on their beds limp. I went from one to the other, dripping water on their lips and begging them to drink. Early the next morning, Dr. Henry came by again. When he pressed the stethoscope against my mother's back and said, breathe, he knit his eyebrows and narrowed his eyes. Before he noticed me watching from the doorway, Dr. Henry sighed and shook his head. He poured alcohol on a thick pad and dabbed my mother's face, neck, and arms. Then he cupped his hands on my mother's cheeks and kissed her forehead. Please get well, Liz, Dr. Henry said. She's going to die, isn't she? And my brothers, too. It's my fault. I couldn't make them drink, I cried. Your mother and the boys are very ill, Betsy. There's only so much we can do, he said. When I followed Dr. Henry downstairs, I felt broken and desperate. I can't take care of them, I whispered. In the doorway, he paused and stared at the pasture across the road as if the lowing cows held the answer. While he stood there, I read the headline on the newspaper folded under his arm. No trick-or-treat tonight for thousands fell 
expelled by flu. No birthday cake for me either, I thought. Dr. Henry touched my chin and leaned over like he was telling me a secret. Run down to the cottage, ask Elizabeth to come, Dr. Henry said. His face was grim. I made a quick round of the sick rooms and left glasses of water by my mother's and brother's bed. In the kitchen, bowls of cold soup, every glass in the house, and clumps of dried cereal littered the stove, table, countertop, and sink. Damp, smelly sheets and clothing lay piled on the back kitchen floor. Still in pajamas and slippers, I pulled on a tattered sweater and ran to the witch's cottage. Fear my mother and brothers would die overwhelmed my fear of the witch. In the damp, chilly dawn, I knocked quietly, hoping the witch would be asleep. Shivers rattled my body, and I wanted to lie down on the doorstep and sleep. But the images of my mother and her wet hair matted across her forehead, my three-year-old brother, limp in his crib, the seven-year-old twins flailing their arms and coughing, stirred my fist, and I pounded on the door, crying, Miss Lidbeth, Miss Lidbeth. Betsy James, come in. I've been waiting for you. Don't worry, child. I've known great sickness before, the witch said, leaning on her cane. A thin white scar ran down her upper lip. Inside, the house smelled of old books and dried fruit. Lace doilies covered the arms of a gold-striped sofa and matching chair. In the arch of the stone fireplace, a black pot dangled. While the witch chose packets from a roll-top desk and dropped them in her leather bag, the furniture stared at me. From the backs of the sofa and chair, carved eagles with piercing eyes looked ready to pounce. Clawed feet flared from furniture legs and rose to winged arms. Despite shaky hands, when I ran my fingers through the grooves in the dark mahogany, I saw the room full of people. People, their heat and sweat mingling with the smell of meat stew and beer. Their cheerful voices welcomed me. My heartbeat slowed. When the witch draped a mustard-colored shawl across my shoulders, I felt at home. Come, Betsy James. There is no time to spare, Miss Elizabeth said. As we left the house, the witch, tall and thin, swung a forest green cape over her woolen dress. Her thick-heeled black shoes crunched through the fallen leaves, and I had to run to keep up, even though she leaned heavy on her cane. The head of the cane was a dragon with eyes and mouth facing down. Inside the mouth, a ruby ball glistened. Carved scales ran along the shaft like a totem pole. I longed to hold the cane and run my fingers over the scales. After we crossed the front porch and entered our house, Miss Elizabeth hurried upstairs to tend my ailing family. Almost paralyzed by fatigue and hunger, I staggered into the living room and fell to my hands and knees. On the arm of a ladder-back chair, the witch had rested her cane. I reached for it. The handle had been rubbed smooth on the top, but the dragon's crystal eyes sparkled above flared nostrils. When I held the cane one way, the dragon leered like a wolf ready to strike, but when I turned it, the dragon seemed wise and kind. As I rubbed the cane between my hands, I forgot my sick family, my dirty house, my empty stomach, and my absent father. I lost myself in the dragon. Betsy James, the witch said, leaning over me. I jumped to my feet. I had fallen asleep on the floor, clutching the dragon cane. I didn't hurt it, I said, and handed the cane back to her. Come here, she said, and patted the threadbare sofa. Miss Elizabeth smelled fresh of lavender and mint, pine and parsley. I sat close and breathed it in. 
Sometimes, child, the ancient cures work better than penicillin and other medicines my nephew and the modern doctors like to use. The Faulkners have studied the healing arts for as long as there have been Faulkners in the world, she said. Are you a witch? Are you 200 years old? I asked. My mortal fear had disappeared. I think you must be hungry, Betsy James, was all she said. The house smelled as fresh as the woods. In the kitchen, a bowl of mushroom soup and a slice of dark bread were set at my place, along with a cup of citrusy tea, sweet and fragrant, so different from the black tea my mother brewed. Dishes were neatly stacked in the drainer. The stovetop and counters were clear. The spills and splatters were gone. In the back kitchen, the washing machine swished and outside white sheets flapped under a cold sun. At the table, Miss Elizabeth sat across from me. She handed me a small burlap bag fastened with a drawstring. The bag smelled of strawberries, peppermint, and ginger. In an hour, brew this tea for your mother and brothers. Not too hot for the boys. Then give them another cup in the evening. They'll be much better tomorrow, she said. Then the witch took my hand, opened my fingers, and dropped three tiny eggs in my palm. These are for you, an All Hallows' Eve treat. Let them melt in your mouth. I'll let myself out. I watched the witch swing her cape over her shoulders, clutch her leather bag to her chest, open the door, and leave us. I ran upstairs to check my mother and brothers. All of them slept their breaths soft, their foreheads cool. When I returned to the kitchen, I found the dragon king swinging on the back of the chair she sat in. I picked it up and ran out the door. You forgot the cane, I called, waving it like a flag. But she was gone, not a sign of her down the road. The realization that I'd have to visit Miss Elizabeth to return her cane made me happy. After I carried my dishes to the sink, I popped the egg-shaped candies into my mouth. They were sweet, but not like sugar, not like fruit, a creamy sweet, soft and slippery, smooth and warm. The candies clicked against my teeth as I trudged upstairs, tears streaming down my cheeks, weight lifting off my shoulders like steam from a pot. In her bedroom, my mother leaned against a pillow, wan but alert. Her hair was combed and the room smelled like strawberries and peppermint. How are the boys, my mother asked, her voice a whisper, and how are you? Sounds of giggling came from the twins' room, and a moment later they carried a little Tommy, all three of them skinny but clean and happy. When they climbed into bed with my mother, I did too, inhaling the bleachy smell of clean sheets. By the time my father returned, all of us felt fine. Snow and cold came early that year, and the ground stayed snow-covered into spring. No one went out much, frightened of the Asian flu. On a sunny Saturday in March, after the weather warmed up and the days grew long, I walked down the road to visit Miss Elizabeth and returned the cane that hung from my bedpost all the months since her help. The old stone cottage looked deserted, decrepit, dilapidated. I rapped hard on the front door with the cane. Mr. O'Neill, the mailman, stopped his truck when he saw me. Betsy James, what are you doing? No one lives in the old Faulkner place, he said. Miss Elizabeth's gone? Where did she go? I asked. My throat so tight I could hardly speak. The flu took her, Mr. O'Neill said. The terrible flu. Outside the cottage, I sat on a crumbling step and ran my fingers through the numbers on the cornerstone, envisioning long, cold winters, squash soup bubbling in a black pot, and a tall, thin girl sitting by the Wissahickon Creek, skipping stones. A lifetime ago, my brothers moved away, reluctant to return, even to stand by me at our mother and father's funerals. The old house we lived in no longer exists, replaced by a row of luxury townhouses. 
Across the road, parents in lawn chairs watch children kick balls on a cow pasture now covered with plastic grass. And I, with my old ways, have become a curiosity to regard and reject. Yet when I lean on my cane and make my way through the woods alongside my cottage, I feel the earth under my feet. On the bank of the Wissahickon Creek, I skip stones, watch ripples, and wait for a girl with a scar on her lip to knock on my door and come in. This week on Mason Out Loud, Christopher N. Heaton's His Reaching Arms. Christopher Heaton is an undergraduate student in George Mason University's English program. He writes fiction and poetry. I saw him online last night, that tall man in that dark suit. I watched him in a documentary today. I'm just a kid, but I'm smart enough to know he's not real. I saw him in the day this afternoon. I knew it was him because his face was gone. I saw him in the trees tonight. I hope it was just another tree. I heard him in my sleep tonight, but he wasn't in my room. It was just a dream. I saw him outside my window this morning. Mom and Dad didn't see him, but they said they'd protect me. I was followed home by him after school. He didn't try to hide, and he didn't have to run like I did. I got away from him and locked the door. I'm going to my room. I can still feel his hands on me. They're wet, clammy, and cold. They won't let me go. I see him outside the window again. He won't go away. He won't look away. I'm calling the police on him. You cannot get away. You're mine. I can hear him on my head. Tell him to leave me alone. He's closer to the window now. Mom, Dad, help. They're not in the house. Please, he won't go away. He's inside the house. I'm okay now. He's my friend. He just wants to play. I'm going away with him now. You'll be mine too. Mason Out Loud is a production of the Department of English at George Mason University and WGMU Radio in Fairfax, Virginia. Lisa Short is our producer and sound engineer. I'm your host, Katrina Smith. Thank you for listening.